Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. 1 Peter, chapter 5. Today we will read verses 1 through 7, and then our focus for this morning's message will be on verses 5 through 7. Before we read, let me just let you know that I'm reading from the King James Version of Scripture. Some of you have noticed that I have been using the KJV more often. And it may have caused you to wonder if I've had some change of conviction concerning Bible translations. Someone asked me about that this week. Um, please hear this. I have not had a change of conviction concerning the use and reliability of good English translations. When I say good English translations, that hints that I think there are bad English translations uh, or, or less gooder. Maybe that's the better way to say it. Let's do it. Um, I, I would put in that classification of good English translations of the scripture, the 1995 version of the New American Standard, the English Standard. And more recently, I'm less familiar with it, but, but I, I like everything that I see in it, the Legacy Standard translation as well. And I mentioned the 1995 New American Standard. If you just go to the bookstore, and buy a New American Standard Bible that says NASB, you are probably getting the 2020 New American Standard that has sought to be more gender inclusive. And for that reason, I do not like it or recommend it. Um, if you'd like to talk more about that, I can tell you some issues there, but I think that's probably enough. Um, but all that to say this, I am not KJV only. I'm not Textus Receptus only, or maybe you've heard people refer to it as TR. Uh, I'm not in any of those camps, but I am convinced that the translation of scripture that I grew up with and memorized uh, the passages that I had memorized from that version, uh, I'm still most familiar with it and it is the most comfortable for public reading. I will not always read the King James Bible. Uh, I study all the good English translations uh, and I weigh in when one is particularly stronger or weaker uh, than another. Uh, we'll have an example of that today uh, in the text. Um, so now let's read 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read 1 through 7 and focus on 5 through 7. The elders which are among you, I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you. Be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. 
For God resisteth the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing on your word. We ask that you, this morning, as you are with us in power, that you would speak to us. I echo the prayers of my brothers that we would hear the voice of Christ and not the voice of a man. God, open our hearts this morning. Convict us of sin. Strike down the sin of pride in us. Teach us humility. Hide this preacher behind the cross of Calvary, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the focal verses that we look at this morning, beginning in verse 5, we notice that we begin in the King James with the word likewise. For some of you, likewise may be the second or third word in your, in your verse. This word likewise reminds us that we need to look at what comes before and it puts us in the proper context to understand who is being addressed in these verses. I think it may be easy for us to miss who is being spoken to. As soon as we begin and say, likewise, ye younger, half of you stop listening, right? Well, that's certainly not me. <laughs> uh, I think we need to understand who is being addressed. This, this verse immediately preceding, or the verses immediately preceding, uh, which we considered last week, they were addressed to the elders, elders. And we went to some effort last week to show that the elders addressed were not so called because of their advanced age, even if most of them were of an older age, an older part of the congregation, they were called elders due to their office, due to their position in the church. So elder, presbyter is the word here, speaks to the office, which is elsewhere called pastor, overseer, bishop. So now we come to verse five and we read likewise, which makes a connection in the preceding verses and, and verse five. It makes a connection to this group of elders and it, it's a strong clue for us as to what is meant or who is meant to be addressed here in these verses. The first verses, elders, now we see younger. The first verses, pastor, pastors, likewise, parishioners. The first verses, shepherds, likewise, sheep. The first verses, clergy, likewise, the congregation. This is how we should understand this section. It is addressed to those who are not elders. The first part addressed to elders. The second part, verses five and following, <coughs> excuse me, addressed to not elders, members of the flock. Just as the term elder, meaning older, may have been an accurate description for those who held the office of pastor. In the same way, the term younger may have been a true statement about the age of most of the congregants 
compared to the pastors. But we saw last week, and we, and we stated it, we, we had some quotes from, from some men, that wisdom does not always come with age. Sometimes there is a special dispensation of wisdom, and we see that office of elder being taken up by the young 30-something Timothy. So there were exceptions to the age thing. And here we would see the same thing. The context, though, in this passage seems clear that the first verses are addressed to pastors. And these verses before us today are addressed to non-pastor church folks. Non-pastor church folks. Now, if you're reading the New American Standard, you're going to see there younger Men, And I think that New American Standard really misses the mark here when it adds the word men. Likewise, young men. Now, I searched for a long time to see any commentaries that would address this younger men. And I found a few, but the only ones that I found addressing this as men were addressing it to correct the New American Standard translation to say this means people of both genders, non-pastor members of the church of both genders. And if you have a New American Standard, if you look in your footnotes, you'll even see that it is footnoted. Young men is footnoted and you'll find there younger people. So why in the world did they write younger men? I, that's a mystery to me. But since we have younger men, the subject brought up, I would address just for a moment, younger men. <laughs> Speaking as a member of the group men, and not so long ago, a younger man. Well, I guess yesterday I was younger, right? Younger than I am today, but, but not so long ago, I was a younger man. It, it seems understandable to me how a bunch of pastors who used to be young men and therefore they can speak to the infirmity, the ailments of being a young man. I, I can see how they would want to address a specific group. Young men, there is generally speaking a certain amount of issues which arise from your youth accompanied with your maleness. There's a thirst for leading something. There's a desire to master something. There's a headstrongness, which may be more common to your group, young men. I think this is why J.C. Ryle wrote to this group, young men, in his book titled Thoughts for Young Men. But I've often said that Ryle's book has great benefits to those who are not so young and those who are not men. So perhaps some translator was dealing with a problematic young man while working on this text for the New American Standard Version and he inserted his frustrations into the text. I don't know. But we need to say that there is another group which can be troublesome at times in the church. These are young women. It's safe to say that when pastors face challenges in ministry, those challenges are brought on by young men or 
young women or older women or older. Sometimes older women can be not so easy to pastor as well. So, so it's young men and it's young women and it's older women. Except for when it's older men. So older men can be stubbornly convinced of their own opinion. Older men can sometimes embody the words of that children's song I grew up singing in Sunday school. I shall not be moved. So, but that's it. It's younger men, younger women, older women, and older men. That's that's the that's the sum total. I think now I'm being silly to make the point here. This passage addresses all the non-elder, non-pastor people of the church. And if that's who is addressed here, then we ask, what is the command? What is being stated? What is being commanded here? I submit to you that this command and what follows it has nothing to do with any action that is to be taken by a person in the church. Isn't that great to hear? The preacher's preaching a message. He's going to give us a command and then he doesn't want us to do anything. I don't believe this text has to deal with actions. Now, certainly actions are important. And our actions will be impacted by the obedience to the truth of this text. But this text is not addressing what we do or what we don't do. This text, this section is addressing attitude. I was expect I really was expecting to hear, oh, attitude. Don't we hate that word? I heard it a lot. Maybe some of you are like me and you heard it a lot growing up. Very seldom was it in a positive context. It always was accompanied. My dad never said you have attitude. He would say you have a bad attitude. You have a stinky attitude. There was, there was some descriptor coming. Uh, and I think that was a that was a good assessment. But don't, don't we wish sometimes that we could dispense talking about attitude and we could just talk about action? Even with our marriages, don't we want to do that? It's Look, I did the thing. I did it grumbling. I did it with a bad attitude, but I did the thing. Just be happy with that. And don't we get that way sometimes? We might not speak to God like that, but we, we get that way. God, can't you just look at what I'm doing and not the attitude with which I am doing it? Brothers and sisters, don't, don't we see in Scripture that to God... Our attitude is at least as important as our actions and perhaps even more important. Actions matter. Attitude matters more. God speaks to those who would come near to him and that they came near in their words and their deeds. But he says their hearts are far from him. and They had a bad attitude. And God said that that attitude invalidated their worship. He said, you worship in vain. Attitude can take good actions and make them sinful. The scripture says, whatever we do, no matter how much virtue we would like to apply to a thing, whatever is not done from faith, and that speaks to attitude and motive. Whatever is not done from faith, whatever is not from faith is sin. 
So brothers and sisters, our attitude, our attitude can take whatever good thing we are doing and put us in a state of displeasure before our heavenly father. When we survey this passage, we quickly understand the particular attitude which the Holy Spirit directs Peter's pen to address. The attitude that is spoken of here is an attitude, a sinful attitude of pride. Now, if you look through the words, you'll only see the word proud mentioned once, but, but we see the antithesis or the antidote to pride. We see humility and it's over and over. Verse five, submitting is an act of willful humbling oneself. Then, then we see be clothed with humility, put on humility. Then in verse six, humble yourselves. The command is very clear. This section of scripture is warning us against pride and, and it's a commendation to humility. So we have the command here, submit. There's two areas of submission that are mentioned. As we submit, we are mortifying our pride. And then we have in the text a command for humility followed by some incentives or some motivations for humility. So in the first place, verse five, commands those who are not elders to submit yourselves to the elders. What an unpopular notion in our day. It seems that the idea of a pastor taking a place of leadership, holding an office which is, which is a place of authority, it seems that this idea is equally despised by pastors and parishioners alike. Now, I would like to give a disclaimer. So listen, if you're going to tune out on any part of the sermon today, listen to this part. Pastoral authority is delegated authority. Christ is the head of the church. He is in charge. He has all authority. He said that all authority is given to me. But Christ in his authority has so ordered his church that men serving in the office of pastor take responsibility and charge over the care and feeding of the sheep. And some pastors won't admit they hold a position of authority because it would mean they would have to lead. They'd have to do uncomfortable things. They, they'd have to do unpopular things sometimes. So they would say things like, well, aren't we all just equals? Boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? it sounds very pious. Aren't we all equals? And, and listen, the reason it sounds good is because there's a kernel of truth in that. There's a truth in that. We are all men and women, boys and girls, pastors and parishioners. We are all the same at the foot of the cross. Before Christ, we are all equals. But God has in his sovereign choice placed some in some positions and others in other positions. Husbands, I would be surprised if you haven't thought, why me? Maybe you say something like this, 
she wants to leave. I'd be really comfortable letting her leave. Why me? But God didn't put her in that position. Wives, maybe you've thought, and, and your husband knows, maybe you've thought, I'm smarter than he is. I could do a better job at this. But here's the deal, God didn't put you in that position. We're all equal, but God put him in that position, put you in the position you're in. Uh, I don't think in a church setting, there's any question. I, I, I often say these words, and I mean these words from the depths of my heart. I'm so often the dumbest guy in the room. I, I'm not in this position because I'm smarter, because I'm better, because I, I'm more holy. But Pastor Brent and I are in this position of pastor. I got off my notes a long ago. This pious idea of we're all the same. Some people pick up on that those who should be submitted to their pastors and they echo the same thing when they say things like, well, the pastors are no better than us. Who put them over us? And then they rebel in their hearts. I will not submit. And sometimes as you speak to those people, you don't hear them say, I will not submit. You hear, you hear it come out in a more holy tone. We've heard in this church, fathers and husbands say, you may pastor me, but you will not pastor my wife and my children. I lead my wife and my children. You won't pastor them. You know what that is? That's a rejection. That's a rebellion to church authority. Now, as pastors, we have no business leading your wife and children in the same way that you do. You have your circle of authority given by God, and we have ours. And we'd also add the third circle of authority being the civil government. Civil government can't do your job as a father, but you can't do theirs. The pastors can't do your job as a father, but you can't do ours either. Sometimes we hear that. Some, sometimes we see people come into the church and seek to undermine the elders, undermine the pastoral authority by teaching things contrary to the doctrines of the church. They try to lead people and maybe they have a natural charisma and they win people quickly and they try to lead people away from the authority structure which God has ordained. And they undermine in that way. Some, some, some come into the church and they even say, while they will not submit to pastoral authority, they say, I am called to be a pastor. I'm called to be a pastor. Sometimes you just want to say, have you submitted to a pastor? But I'm called to be a pastor. And what's more, I will tell you how my calling will be played out. I will tell you when and where and how this calling is to be exercised. Don't you wish I had read about this in a book? <laughs> that it wasn't experience? Then when no church has called this man and when they refuse to submit to their pastors, when there's any 
inkling of pastoral leadership that is exerted, they bolt away from this church and go to find another place. And the sad truth is they will be able to find somewhere that a pastor will be easily manipulated. Because sometimes pastors want to say, I don't want to leave. Laziness, pride, sin. Often pastors in preaching faithfully through texts of scripture will skip over these instructions to submit to the elders or, or else they will address them but will treat them very lightly. And it, and it makes sense. It, it could seem self-serving to instruct members of the church to submit to a position in which you are serving yourself. It, should, it can seem self-serving. Perhaps some of you even this morning have thought this sounds like a self-serving text, a self-serving message. I would just like to remind you, I would have skipped it, but it's in the Word of God. So we've got to address it. And brothers and sisters, it's so plainly taught and it's so plentifully taught in the scripture that what kind of pastor would I be to skip over this? What kind of pastor would I be to treat this lightly? I, I would call you, uh, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews uh, 13 verse 17 says this, uh, the, the apostle Paul said this in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have rule over you and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. Certainly we saw earlier in Peter's letter that there are limits to the extent to which we submit to human authority. And that holds true with church structure and with church elders. But Christians, as long as you are not being called on to sin against God's law, Christian, you must submit to your elders. And I want to say this lovingly. I want to say this in my heart, not desiring that anyone would leave our church. But I would say this. If you can't submit to the elders of the church where you are a member, you need a different church where you can submit. And you should submit to the elders of the church, not begrudgingly, not bitterly, submitting in a way that the pastors can say, what a pleasure it is to have you under our care Submit in a way that brings your elders joy. And Hebrews reminds you that you are the beneficiary when you submit in this way. You benefit. What a, what a joy it is. I, I, I struggled with this message because I don't want it to sound like, boy, he's just fussing at, at us because of the way we act. I want you to know this. It is a joy to see some of you submitted to and loving your pastors. You pray for us. You seek godly counsel and biblical advice from us. You honor us in the way that you speak to us and in the way that you speak about us when you speak to others. 
Brothers and sisters, I've, I've tried to model before you the respect and admiration that you should have for your pastors when I speak about Pastor Brent. But some of you put me to shame. You go even further in how you respect and submit to your pastors. And we, your pastors, thank God for you. And we count it a blessing and a joy to serve Christ by serving you. What a privilege. So the command is here. Maybe pride wells up in the heart. Submit. But Christians, you must submit yourself to your elders. It is the command of Christ. In verse 6, then we have another area in which we are to submit. In which this in, in this other area where we are to choke out that pride of the human heart. We are to all submit one to another. Now, this submitting one to another, true from Scripture, sometimes is abused and taken, uh, taken too far, taken in a place that it doesn't belong. Some have tried to use this command that we submit to, to one another to undo other biblical commands to submit. You know what that sounds like? Wives, submit to your husbands. Well, aren't we supposed to all submit to one another? So I'm not going to submit to my husband. He can submit to me. And as to the extent that he submits to me, I'll submit to him. You see how that works? Submit to your elders. Well, aren't we all supposed to See, so some try to take this submitting one to another and undo other biblical commands to submit. And we are to submit to governmental authorities, to church elders, wives to husbands, slaves to masters. But this command, submit one to another, does not replace all the other commands. We still submit to those whom God has placed over us in these positions of authority. But we are also to submit one to another. Now Paul, when he wrote to the saints at Philippi, he gave them very clear instruction. I think it helps us to understand this. I will, if you would like to turn, um, Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 3. Do nothing. These are familiar verses. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing from vain ambition. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. <laughs> Don't you wish that was less clear? <laughs> so that we could say, boy, how hard. And this is very clear. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, which was also in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the model of our humility and our submission. Verse 6 here tells us, uh, how we are to see him. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
Boy, how much are we tempted to think more highly of ourselves? And the world tells us that's okay. The world tells us that's the way to be. You should have pride. How much is said about self-esteem? The world says a lot about self-esteem. Christians, the Bible says a lot about self-esteem. It's not the same stuff. The Bible speaks of self-esteem as a vice, not a virtue. But the world tells us, look out for number one. But, but the scripture tells us here, we are to look out for the interests of others. Think of others more highly than ourselves. We are to serve one another. Now, now there are people in this room of all ages. And some of you are thinking, I'm too young for that. Some of you are thinking, he's talking to the older, the people older than me. If you are listening to me and you are a Christian, I'm not talking to the people older than you. I'm talking to you. This is for you. We are to serve one another. We are to submit ourselves one to another. There's nobody in here too young. There's nobody in here too old. There's nobody in here too anything. There are always ways for us to submit and to serve one another. There again, what a blessing it is to see this happening in our church. We see this in, in different areas and different ways. I think maybe the easiest example to go to is the example in our lunchroom. When somebody comes by and says, are you done? Can I take your plate? What a, what a simple, easy, I mean, I was going to the trash can anyway. What an easy way for me to serve you, to show you love, to submit one to another. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you, it is not the job of our deacons to do all the serving. But wait a minute, isn't that what the word deacon means? Yes. And they are lead servants. But they're not to do all the serving. We are to serve one another. And humility and mutual submission is this is this the natural state of man? Is this what we are in our in our human nature as men and women to, to be humble and to serve one another? No. This behavior is not native to us, but this behavior of humble submission one to another is part of our new nature. This humble submission is a grace from God and it should mark us. We should be known by it. Now, I'm moving forward, but, but stay with me here. How do you know a police officer? Most often it's for the uniform. The way he dresses. Then you know who that is. How, how do we know a doctor? Uh, by that white coat. We, we know his clothing. We know who he is by his clothing, by what he is clothed in. And we can say the same thing about a soldier, about a judge, about a concierge at a hotel. We know people by the way they are clothed. Think about the attendant at the grocery store, the guy that's uh, the stacking the apples. <laughs> He's got on that apron. 
We know that's his, that's his job. He's got on that apron. He is clothed in that apron. And I bring that apron up because we're going to see an example of being clothed in an apron. Verse five, Christians, it tells us how to dress. Now, we all know that we should be putting on the whole armor of God. But what about underneath that armor? Underneath that armor, we should be clothed with humility. Clothed with humility. People should recognize humility as the attire of Christians. That's the uniform, brothers and sisters. Clothe yourself. Put on this. Put on humility. The word here for clothe yourself. This is a word which means to tie a knot. See when I bring up the apron. It's to tie a knot. It is to cinch something on. And we think of the example of Jesus Christ when he sat there with the disciples for a meal and not one of them would, would humble himself, would submit himself to the others and wash their feet. That job, each man would say, I'm not going to do that. That's what we have servants for. Who wants to wash John's nasty feet? I'm not going to do that. I, I won't stoop to that level. Do we hear Christians say that? They may not say these words, but this is what they say. They. Shamefully, sometimes this is what we say. I'm too good for that. I'm above that. I won't lower myself to that level. Jesus Christ stood and took a towel and tied it around his waist and took a basin of water and stooped down to the feet of the disciples and washed the filth from their feet. That's beneath me. The King of Kings did it. The Lord of Lords did it. The one who spoke creation into existence, he did it. I'm sure when Peter wrote these words about how we are to submit ourselves one to another and how we are to be clothed with humility, these things had to be on Peter's mind because he was sitting there when Jesus washed his feet or, or tried to wash his feet. And Peter said, no, he resisted the Lord's service. No, you're not going to wash my feet. Remember what Jesus said? If I don't wash you, you have no part of me. Rather than resist Jesus, Peter should have, and I believe did later in his life, become a follower of Jesus. A, a, uh, one who takes up the example of Christ and, and follows his modeling. And, and here in, in that text, Jesus is not teaching us that we should do pedicures in church. Okay, Jesus is not establishing an ordinance of foot washing. I know some people get that confused, but what he is doing is he is showing us by this beautiful example that we are to serve one another just as our Savior, just as our Lord serve those men. We are to, we are to tie on the apron of humility. We are to ready ourselves for service, service to our brothers and sisters in this fellowship. 
And then we see a motivation. Why, why should I humble myself? Why should I submit? Why should I exercise this humble service to my brethren? Because God resisted the proud. It says it right there. <clears throat> Holding on to your pride is not just an internal struggle. I mean, sometimes it is an internal struggle. But, but one commentator said about this, God aligns himself in battle array against the proud. Think, think about pride. Think about pride was the first sin. Isaiah tells us that Satan rebelled saying statements of pride like this. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the forest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. Satan's sin and fall came from pride. And then Satan comes to the garden and he says to Adam and Eve, these prideful statements like, you will be like God. God lied to you. You surely will not die. And pride wells up in the heart of Adam and Eve and they pridefully eat that fruit seeking to rise to God's level or to rise above God himself. And by doing so, they sin and plunge all of mankind into sin. We see the sin of pride throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the, the nations rage against God in pride. Pharaoh said, well, who is God that I should let these people? Over and over, we see men swelled up with pride. Brothers and sisters, each and every time sin is committed, we need to make that more personal. Each and every time I sin, each and every time you sin, pride begins the whole process. God resisted the proud. And, and by the way, his holiness demands that he resist the proud. And Christian, this is incentive. This is motivation for us to squelch, to put down, to mortify, to kill our pride, and instead to be clothed with humility. Another incentive is in the next phrase. God gives grace to the humble. It's not only that, that God will stand down from his battle array against pride. It's that when we are clothed in humility, we have switched sides of the battle lines. Now God is our champion. He gives grace to the humble. Some of us try everything we can to get ahead in life. We, we try everything we can to get things to go our way. How do I, how do I make that happen? But brothers and sisters, you may be fighting a losing battle. You, you may be fighting a battle trying to have a good life that you can't win because God resisteth the proud. 
But the good news is he gives grace to the humble. Now, Christian, humble yourself. And, and you know what that looks like. Christians know what that looks like because that's how we came to Jesus initially. No one comes to Christ in salvation swelled up with pride. How do we come? You humbly confess to Christ your sins. You admit that you don't deserve his grace, but you humble yourself in repentance and faith and you receive the gift of salvation. And living as a Christian is the same. It, it looks the same as becoming a Christian. You never advance past the place of humility. Humility, that was when I was a young Christian, but I've grown past it. No, we never rise through the ranks. The kingdom of God has this, has this thing that is foreign to the world's thinking. The first are last and the last are Now, lost person, pride is your sin as well. So the call for you today is once you hear the call of Christ, once you hear the voice of Jesus calling to you to humble yourself, to come to him in repentant faith, you can bring nothing good to your own life. Everything you do is defiled by sin and brings destruction and death. So today, hear the call of Scripture, run to Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of all, who will humbly seek Him. There's so much more that can be said and we don't have time. It's under the mighty hand of God that we submit. But I think you can spend a lot of time here. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. His mighty hand is the only force powerful enough to save you from an otherwise hopeless condition. So this is the command. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. One, one more thing. Verse 7. How do, how do you do that? How do you humble yourself? Casting all your cares on Him. This everything that we swell up with pride for is what we fight tooth and nail about, right? That's mine. I have a right to that. What are those things? Those are cares. We cast all our cares on Him, so that so that when I'm mistreated, when I'm persecuted, when I'm abused. I don't fight. I don't swell up with pride. I take that care to Christ. Casting all your anxiety on Him, for He cares for you. Boy, this could say this could say, cast all your cares on your pastors, for we care for you. That is limited, isn't it? That's limited in hope. Hey, we care for you as much as any man could, right? We, we care, but the, the limitations are just uh, insurmountable. Cast all your cares on your husband. He cares for you. I hope he does. 
But there's a limitation there. He's a man. Cast all your cares on your wife or your family, your children. Cast all your... This could say so many different things. What a blessing. He cares for you. Cast your cares on Him. Cast your anxieties on Him because He cares and He is the one who has that mighty hand. In the New Testament, this is the only place where that is mentioned, the mighty hand of God. Now in the Old Testament, we've got it all over the place. The mighty hand, the mighty arm, the, and, and, and it expresses the power. Aren't we glad we don't serve a wimpy God? We serve a God who cares for us and we submit ourselves to him. We've got to stop. I know. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this text of scripture, we, we are convicted of our own sin, of our own pride. And God, we see that humility sometimes seems so far from us. Even when we feign humility, even when we have a, a fake humility toward other people, Lord, you know our hearts. So God, we pray for help. We pray that you would, by your word and your spirit, teach us humility. We pray this in Christ's name.